stop. Sure you want the rest of it? Dirty Harry Miller. Dirty Harry Miller. Dirty Harry Miller Podcast. Dirty Harry Miller Podcast. Every penny's worth. Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute. Today we have more great fun. Because we are very lucky to be joined by the man who wrote the book on Dirty Harry, in a way. Author of Dirty Harry's America, Clint Eastwood, Harry Callahan, and the Conservative Backlash. Associate Professor in American History at Northumbria University, UK, Joe Street. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Ah, oh, morning, John. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, you're, not, you're definitely not from Berkeley because... Harry wouldn't like that. No, no. I, I, I visited there. I have uh, relatives who, who actually live up in the hills, but, um, but no, I'm not Berkeley. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, Dirty Harry and Clint Eastwood would find lots of things uh, utterly objectionable about me. <laughs> now, look, I first came across your excellent book when I was halfway through the Dirty Harry Minute. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was, pretty, I was pretty young and timid about approaching guests uh, after some Facebook messages with Andy Robinson went a bit quiet. But some months ago, I heard you on the great podcast, Podcasty for Me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, it, it was that, that came out of the blue, really. Um, the, the guys got in touch with me and said, uh, look, we're, um, we're quite keen to do something on either uh, the Deadpool or um, a Sudden Impact. Uh, so which one do you fancy? So I said, well, Sudden Impact's the... Uh, least uninteresting of the sequels, so um, we had a, we had a lovely chat about that, and um, yeah, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And what, what's what's kind of funny is, you know, the, the book came out in twenty sixteen, I think, so it's um, only taken six years for for people to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the book, tell us about the antecedents of the book. You, I believe, taught a class or a module on. Yeah, tell me about how that came about, how your students felt about it, and. What you felt about it after the end of it? I uh, I, I started. This is t- it's nearly twenty years ago now. I started teaching um, courses on Amer- on America in the nineteen sixties, and I wanted to introduce students to films from the sixties that are kind of canonical or, or interesting or fun to watch. Because I realised that now uh, nowadays. Um, I say nowadays makes me sound like an old, a crinkly old fool, but uh, kids, or the, the kids growing up didn't really watch as many movies as, as I did, courtesy of, of television. So they didn't have that kind of informal education in, in great films. And so I would show them uh, Bonnie and Clyde, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers for the 1950s. And to illustrate the, um, the conservative backlash of the late 1960s, I showed Dirty Harry. And um, every year the students would have these, we'd have these lovely discussions about all of the ideas in the film. And uh, every year we'd have a, uh, a collective moan about the, um, the fact that none of this was in the, the literature. And one year one of the students said, well, Dr. Street, why don't you write it? And I'd never really thought about that before, and and, and I did. And um, uh, a lot of the ideas that we discussed in the seminars came out in a, an article I wrote called Dirty Harry's San Francisco that formed the basis of the book. And what was kind of interesting about the students' reactions and about which, which 
kind of is, is interesting about the reactions to the film itself is that they they understood that Harry Callahan was a, a problematic figure, shall we say, <laughs> but they couldn't help oh, yeah, but yeah, but but see him as the hero. And I always thought that's that's the most interesting thing about the films is the way that it, it depicts all of his uh, foibles as sort of almost like lovable foibles when in fact he's deeply racist and sexist and he ignores the law and he does things that we would never do. And because of the way that the the films kind of construct him as the hero, you can't help but say, well, yeah, you know, maybe Dirty Harry has a point there that, that sometimes criminals do need to be shot. Um, and that was that's one of the animating things for me is that that, that relationship, not, not necessarily between good and evil, but between that, that kind of thin blue line between the law and uh, the outlaw. I was interested to talk to you too, because we come from countries with a completely different policing history to the United States. And you could say well, our countries have less explicit legal rights in a way, although UK has an unwritten constitution, but there's no, well, until recently there's been little military style policing or but obviously, as we've gone down the Neo Thatcher, I'm sorry, Neo Margaret Thatcher, you know, zero tolerance, and uh, yeah. So I thought it was quite interesting to reach out to someone who comes from a different culture, like me. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I'm guessing you say, well, how how did that influence the way I uh, responded to, to to yeah, you know, and and I I still find it utterly terrifying when I see uh, police with guns in the street. We occasionally see them here, and and it, and it does have a, a really big impact on me, you know, a, a number of levels. And um, I meet the Second Amendment with, with a sort of, or the way that the Second Amendment has been used in recent political discourse with, with kind of bafflement in many respects. And, you know, if you look at the stuff I've done about the Black Panther Party, you, you can't help but see the way it's been wielded as a tool of, of almost like white supremacy. And, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about Dirty Harry is the way that it, it's, you know, the, the holding of the gun is is an exercise in power, which is kind of an obvious thing to say in many respects. But the, the Dirty Harry um, doesn't have any compunction in, in using it in the wrong way. And it shows that the, the extent of the law and the Second Amendment uh, only goes so far, really, um, and that, you know, for want of a better term, bad actors like Dirty Harry can use it with impunity and, and, and really get away with it. You know, he gets away with quite a lot of um, quite awful uh, crimes. And we as an audience are directed, particularly by the first film, to say, well, you know, he, he, he did. He should have tortured that guy. Maybe he should have killed him as well. Um, you know, and then obviously in the final shootout, um, uh, we get that catharsis of him destroying um without really due process a man's life who we know is a pretty evil character so it, it it's it it brings up the films bring up all sorts of um conflicting ideas in the audience and it, and it does uh you know I, I don't think it's a profound commentary on america's attitude towards guns but it does fit into the that the whole ideological um, role that guns kind of play in, in American society. Yeah, I, I do. As I've gotten older, I saw the movie in my early teens and I just loved it. I just thought it was, it was another Steve McQueen. It was fun. And now as I get a bit older, I appreciate the the history of my police, the policing in my country with indigenous people and so forth. And I feel a bit guilty for liking it. But then as many of the reviewers say, that's the stacked deck. Like it, they make it, they really so you want to see him hurt in the end. And that's, manipulative in a way yeah and it, it, it's the 
that's why I found the films so so interesting is that they are not I, 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 they're not as manipulative as as the word might suggest, but they do manipulate you into thinking that yes, this is that common sense is a useful way of policing that we we put trust in these men who are dealing with evil people and criminals who who don't actually deserve due process of law and it it that's why i kind of try to link it to to ronald reagan and his ideas about there are no uh, easy uh, answers but there are simple answers you know that mm-hmm. um if somebody is running at you with a knife you shoot them you know and, and those are they're very visceral reactions and and that's what it it, it that's why I find them interesting from, you know, coming from a, a more leftist position is the way in which it, it plays around with the weaknesses of liberalism. And, and you see that particularly in the first film with the way that the liberal police and the liberal mayor deal with, with Dirty Harry. And they can't really comprehend why you would do such a thing because he's ignoring all of the, the legal strictures that, that 1960s liberalism have put on us. And of course, the film is saying that, well, we, we don't really need the Escobedo decision. We don't really need Miranda rights. What we need is a, is a big, tall man with a large gun. <laughs> Look, that's a great way, uh, Professor, for you to segue into telling us a little bit about the political background to conservative politics in US after World War II, how it may have began, particularly in one state, California, with the, um, the election of Ronald Reagan and his, his dog whistles about jungle paths at night. Yeah, if you just speak to that, that would be great. There are kind of two things going on here. There's national and there's the the state level politics. And, and the, the Dirty Harry responds to, like you say, the election of Ronald Reagan and also the rise of uh, Goldwater uh, style uh, neoconservatism, which is a, a very technocratic, um, well, not technocratic, very technological and also non-traditional form of conservatism that, that kind of takes root in South Carolina, California and eventually expands to overwhelm the Republican Party and then latterly the nation. And, and Reagan is, is a, a core part of this. He gives this, this speech supporting uh, Goldwater that's rabidly anti-communist and that, that lays the, uh, the foundations for him to uh, launch this campaign for governor of California, which, like I say, is full of dog whistle politics, um, talks about uh, city streets being turned into jungle paths at night. And you know exactly what he means by use of the word jungle um, in the context of uh, the, the racial uprisings that took place in, in other big cities in the wake of the civil rights movement. And he also plays... Um, he makes Berkeley into a, a, a shorthand for everything that's wrong in America because at, at Berkeley, at, um, the University of California campus was roiled with tensions over free speech, over student protest and so on. And he takes aim at the University of California as, as one of the... It becomes the big bete noir, um, a little like immigrants have nowadays in, in British political discourse, is that you use Berkeley to show everything that's wrong with, with America and then you, he targeted... Um, UC Berkeley or the University of California straight away once he became governor. So there's a big shift to the right here in, in American politics, to cut a very long story short. Um, and it's it's down to the, the failures of 1960s liberalism to deal with the, the, the problems that um, are revealed by uh, a generation of protesters, not only the civil rights movement, but civil uh, student protesters, etc., etc. And these aren't to say that these people... Uh, created the problems, but they revealed them. And 1960s liberals couldn't quite comprehend how to deal with them because they were essentially 
uh, also trying to fight the Vietnam War, which was uh, consuming the government. And of course, in 1968, Richard Nixon comes to power in part because of the the Democrats' failure both to give, to do guns and butter. Essentially, um, he comes to power on essentially the same sort of platform that, that Ronald Reagan does. It's about law and order. It's about essentially states' rights, and it's into this that Dirty Harry emerges as yet another critique of of 1960s liberalism and and its failure to uh, quell crime using these kind of technocratic methods and a reliance on the word of law and and paper law, essentially, rather than the law of the gun. But as you mentioned, California as a whole may have retreated into conservatism and exponentially at a national level, but San Francisco, ironically, you mentioned Berkeley before, sort of managed to stay liberal. And you've, if you have you know, a clear line from the beatnecks and the publication of Howl and it was ruled not obscene and then the human being of January 67 with thousands of young people coming, streaming to, Cal- uh, to Northern California anyway, particularly the Haight-Ashbury district. You included a, a great quote here about the, from the chief of police, Tom Cahill, bemoaning, quote, a swift kick in the buttocks by an old Irish policeman in the old days immediately becomes a violation of civil rights. Yeah, yeah. Cahill's a, a, a fascinating figure. We, you know, we, I could talk about him for quite some time. But yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a real tension in San Francisco, which historically has seen itself as a, as a well, it continues to see itself as a city of, of sanctuary. And as a place where you can, um, up until recently, um, get quite cheap accommodation and be left to explore uh, essentially the the life that you want to live. And again, uh, this this kind of, it's seen as a permissive place. Um, and this is the place that, that coincidentally, Dirty Harry uh, polices. And it, it, it kind of, the film kind of plays on the tension between the police and the counterculture in, in sort of quite simplistic ways. But you can kind of see how certain older, um, more Catholic residents of um, uh, San Francisco look at the the beatniks and the civil rights activists and the hippies in uh, the Fillmore district and in uh, the mission and so on with kind of like like um quite a bit of resentment uh but also a, a disgust really and it, and it's that that you kind of see playing out with uh, with dirty harry himself you're right how Newspapers like the Examiner, the National Enquirer, were sort of saying, always, always sort of focusing their eye on San Francisco and immature Berkeley professors, maybe not like yourself, giving youngsters too much latitude and uh, criminal coddling, police hounding ideologies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and there's um, yeah. there's a long sequence of articles in 1967 uh, in the Chronicle about the runaways. Uh, about young people who've come to San Francisco um, to take part in, in the counterculture and it's it's kind of permissive society, many of whom get involved in drugs and crime and so on. And and this becomes, it's not quite as, uh, as big an issue as you might think it is, but it, it's certainly in the background there. You know, and again, you see this with Dirty Harry with some of his encounters with these countercultural style individuals who are, are clearly in the wrong place at the wrong time. You mentioned um, teaching some of these the movies or commenting on movies like uh, Bonnie and Clyde and I think Bullet as well. Do you see Dirty Harry as the first of this unique type of movie that's sort of going down the Nixon line or are there any antecedents? Do you see Bullet as being the start of how pop culture is starting to change its 
representation of what a modern cop is? That's a really, really good question. I haven't really thought about it from from that kind of perspective, to be perfectly honest. You know, there are a a sequence of films that that kind of play on the tension between individual police and the bureaucratic structures around them, like the detective is one, a bullet, as you say, is another one. You you also see this in uh, a previous Don Siegel uh, Eastwood collaboration in Coogan's Bluff, where a, oh, an, yes. a, an Arizonan policeman is transplanted to New York City and really struggles with the bureaucratic nature of policing in the big city and often says, you know, we could just go in and get this guy out and and transport him back to uh, Arizona. Um, and they say, no, 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 we can't possibly do that. We need to get the Supreme Court to do all this. And, and he, um, whilst he chafes at this, he actually through the film, realises that, in actual fact, this is the proper way to police. Um, And you see at the end, he performs a citizen's arrest on somebody um, because he'd been deprived of his his police functions as a consequence of various things in the film. And and so his, rather than shooting the guy, he arrests him and they follow due process and eventually is able to uh, transport this criminal back to Arizona. So there are antecedents, but there isn't, you know, to my mind, the... What, what what Dirty Harry does is it takes that that sort of um, I hesitate to say renegade or rebel cop into new territory by by basically pla- placing him in opposition to the law in many respects and in opposition to all the bureaucracy. So it, it, it follows a, a a line that we see um, emerging in the nineteen sixties, but it really does push that that tension to almost a breaking point, really. Yeah, a bullet. I haven't seen Bullet in a long time. Nor me. And, and you know, uh, Bullet is. Uh, I, I see it very much more of a film, almost like about San Francisco in some respects. It, it's kind of fascinated, strange enough, with the architecture and the geography of the city, much more so than um, than Dirty Harry is. Um, you know, so you see him in this this gleaming white metropolis, and you you see the yeah. the, the seedy underbelly emerging, and of course you've got the, that that car chase that that still astonishes. Well, you know, like fifty years on, and. <clears throat> You know, he's he's a cop who's in danger, really, and he 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 has to uh, kind of negotiate between the failures of the the police uh, department in San Francisco and also the mafia and various other people. Whereas Dirty Harry, you never get a sense he's in danger. Um, you know, he's, he's <laughs> there's you know he gets shot uh, at least once in the uh, once maybe twice in the film and and sort of brushes it off like like you or I would a, a minor scratch. You know, so you you really get a sense that that the cop in the detective in Coogan's Bluff to a certain extent and in in Bullets is really vulnerable, where he becomes invulnerable in Dirty Harry. Like Harry, though, they have a sort of a moral code and it's sort of suggesting that there are, you know, tensions between the police and the the liberal establishment on how things should be done. Yeah, you know, and and I was uh, I was recently watching Coogan's Bluff for another um, thing I'm writing at the moment, and I, and I, and I kind of realised that there's a, a a thinly veiled racism in, in encoded in the film. That the, the film starts out with Coogan having tracked this uh, Native American criminal for three days, um, and he then uh, he once he captures him, he, he doesn't arrest him. He hits him with a rifle butt and then handcuffs him to mm. a. Um, uh, a doorpost while uh, Coogan goes inside to um, have uh, carnal relations with a, a married woman and he deprives this man of a cigarette when he asks. Mm. Whereas, you know, when you look at the, appreh- when he apprehends the, the white criminal later on, 
He reads him his rights, he arrests him properly, and when they uh, sit him down on the helicopter return, you know, riding off into the sunset, so to speak, they share a cigarette. So, and and it's it's not really commented upon, but you kind of I, I was I was looking at you know watching it once again and thinking like crikey he really is a racist and part of the reason why he gets on it seems to be so well in in New York City because pretty much everybody he encounters is white with the exception of Albert Popwell who he um he has yes. a, a minor <laughs> uh, contretemps with at the uh, the pigeon toed orange peel club. <laughs> You might recall in Dirty Harry when he's at Jeffy's cafe on the orange juice behind Jeffy, there's a there's a sticker for orange peel, uh, pigeon toe, or whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the two. Yeah, it's a very yeah. peculiar thing. But yeah, so you know, they're, they're, and I do like those intertextual references. I like the way that Popwell turns up through the films, and he, he has this little, uh, he transforms every time, so you see a different side of him. And it's a real regret to me that, that he didn't appear, wasn't able to appear in in the Deadpool just to complete the uh, uh, the quadrilogy or whatever we call it, quintology or whatever. Yeah. We call it. I note you, you mentioned perhaps that was subconsciously emblematic of a, a Reagan or a time in, in pop culture where black people not seem to be yeah. exist, in existence. Yeah, he, he was essentially erased or you know, forgotten. But yes, it's, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 they would, the filmmakers would possibly say it's a minor thing. It might have been contractual. I, I don't know the details at all. But, but yeah, it does speak of the, uh, the inattention of the Reagan administration to uh, the black American population. Uh, just a little sidetrack. When you were doing research, it's often mentioned in Harry Law. It's probably just repeated without any research, but that at one point the Filipino police force allegedly ordered a print of the film for use in training. Wow. Did you ever come across any existence of that? It could be an apocryphal story. I, I did not know that. I, I wouldn't be prepared to comment either way. It's a possibility. Yeah. I don't know. You know, the, the research that I did was essentially focused on the films themselves and as you can see the the um the backdrop to them in terms of Siegel and Eastwood's career the development of um the police thriller and uh American policing in the 1960s and then afterwards the the popular culture and the, the political stuff I wasn't really so interested in the kind of the studio uh, records of Dirty Harry and, yeah. and the sequels and, the, and Siegel's own papers um, about it because I wasn't so much worried with the auteurist um, approach to the film in, in essence because you know Don Siegel says well I, I we were just making an entertainment and, and Eastwood says you know we didn't we didn't discuss politics can you believe that and Siegel throughout his life didn't really comprehend that he'd made a highly conservative film in part because he was a he's a classic Hollywood liberal um, and you know I I think he he's his thoughts about it were, well, a liberal can't make a conservative film. <laughs> End of story. And what I think is is fascinating about the film and the sequels is that because they were designed to be entertainments, they're designed to be cheap, they're not designed to be, you know, important political films, they have they, they say a lot about the unconscious. And these are the unconscious things that are placed in the film because of reasons that you don't understand. And that that freed me up from saying, well, this is what Siegel, uh, this is what Sir, Bruce Surtees is, cinematographer, this is what Dean Reiser, the script uh, man, and, and John Melius wanted to do. It's more that the way that the audience respond to it and the way that we as as viewers can play around with them within the context of the times, what, what, what Pauline Cal called like, the social constructionist reading of a film. <laughs> And then Richard Schickel said that was prissy social worker type 
reaction to the film. But um, they've obviously both said contradictory and perhaps disingenuous things uh, after they made the film. Mm. Once again, Siegel has made ambiguous films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. People's always told me that was a parable about communism, but then maybe it's from the reverse. It's about McCarthyism and blind. Yeah, so- It's also about Fordism. And the, oh, yeah, yeah oh. you know, there, there's a whole host of things, and and this is the the, the kind of the beauty of uh, Don Siegel's films is he's he's not an auteur, he's he's not somebody like um, uh, like David Fincher who controls every aspect. And uh, if you, you read his autobiography, there's some interesting things about how he sees his role, which is essentially he's almost like he sees himself as Dirty Harry himself. He gets given a script, huh. um, yeah. he he works around with it with his favourite scriptwriters, um, does what he can with it, and then he goes and shoots the film as quickly as possible to give the studio as little footage as possible so they couldn't um, do much with the film after he provided them with his cut Um, because they would have to order extensive reshoots, which would be more expensive. And because he's a cheap director and they give him limited budgets, this works to his advantage. So... His his authorial stamp on it, if you, if you will, is, is kind of quite uh, quite clever, but also it's about craft. You know, he knows how to craft a scene. He knows how to make a film uh, efficiently. And and if you look at all of his films, that that they are there are not an awful lot of ambiguities in them. There's a lot in there about a man's uh, relationship with bureaucracy, but essentially they're very quick films. And what I like about them is they don't go on for too long. You know, <laughs> I'm fed up of watching films that are two and a half hours long. Every now and again, you want to watch something that's done and dusted in 90 minutes. And that's one of the beauties of a Don Siegel film. They don't hang around. When the movie comes out, we're well in halfway through Nixon's first term. Before he was elected, you have a middle class, for lack of a better word, fearful of a rising cultural left and the silent majority. There's also reports at the time about police overstepping their authority in, you know, obstruction of justice and entrapment and all those sort of things. And, of course, the biggest thing, you've got the Zodiac Killer still uncaptured. Once again, it's often reported that Clint modelled himself on Dave Tosky, but I don't really think Clint's that sort of a studious method actor. No, that, that was... often repeated, yeah. Yeah, that, that was uh, Steve McQueen in Bullet. McQueen. He he, yeah. uh, he met with Tosky, I think, and was quite taken with Tosky's uh, idiosyncratic use of a holster around his shoulder. Yeah. Well, look, when I look at photos of him, like, not to judge him, whatever, great, great cop, I think, but he looks just like an eccentric sort of... He is, nerd. He he is kind like of an eccentric. Type. Yeah, yeah. He's an eccentric. He he was taken with. He liked to wear big bow ties, and uh, I think he he kind of enjoyed a uh, a public uh, persona that that most cops didn't have, um, which he you know which sort of a part and parcel of the the Zodiac um, case. And it, the, the depiction of him in Zodiac, David Fincher's film, is actually quite good. <laughs> that you, you kind of see Mark Ruffalo with these, you know, looking sort of hangdog, but also kind of enjoying the, the notoriety he's getting. Um, but, yeah, there's there's no real Tosky in, in Dirty Harry. Um, you know, there's a lovely little uh, uh, scene in, in Zodiac where Tosky goes to see Dirty Harry and walks out of it um, <laughs> in, in, in sort of disgust. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, and so I, I don't see him, Dirty Harry, as, as reflecting anybody real in that sense. Big question. There's probably no simple answer in your opinion. Does the movie actually glorify Harry? Does it glorify a cop with an attitude problem? We'll just talk about the first one at the moment. 
isn't he too pathetic? Like he's a loser. Yeah, he's overworked, grumpy. He's both overworked and grumpy, but also uh, it, it kind of it, you can't help but admire him. And you know, one of the things he does the things that we can't do. You know, he's always got a good quip for one of those moments. Whereas, you know, when when you and I might walk past somebody who says something to us that we get annoyed about, it's ten minutes later before we come to an answer. You know, and he does it straight away. Um, and and also, there's you can't help but find him. Uh, amusing, you know. So even when he's talking about how many uh, racial minorities he hates, um, you know, it's like basically he's an equal opportunities racist, and he especially hates spicks, you know. And and you're like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, because he's saying that to his mate, that that's okay, and it, it kind of messes around with like he can't be a racist because he's friends with the doctor who happens to come from Potrero Hill, where where he uh, where he also grew up. So in one sense, he's kind of every man. In one sense, he's kind of glorified that he does things we can't do and, we, and that we don't do. But in another sense, and this is the kind of the sublimated sense, he's he's somebody who's deeply problematic. And that's why I think the film is so useful for for, um, for analysing is because of the way it plays around with those those kind of things that we, we never really know where we should stand. You know, we should not like him, but we, we don't half like it when he beats somebody up. <laughs> Kale obviously said a lot of things. All the reviewers were united in saying, as we've talked of before, that it's really quite exciting. It works great on the level of a thriller. You know, even a card-carrying ACLU member would like wants to cheer on him. You know, it's wish fulfillment about us. The real cops couldn't find Zodiac, but here we, we found it in movie form. Mm. She mentions also that unlike because. I'm I'm a big fan of the French connection, mm-hmm. but I often wonder when there's contemporaneous reviews looking back, people sort of laud French connection. I, I think it has its own problems as well. Oh, yeah. But she was pointing out that unlike Popeye Doyle, who's sort of manic and very East Coast, it's precisely because Clint Eastwood plays him as being soft-spoken and methodical, and he- that makes it even more insidious that there's this cool cop, as you said, that has these quip. Yeah, yeah, you know that that's that's one of the things about casting that 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 is always that is fundamentally interesting. That had it been, you know, um, it was originally going to be Frank Sinatra set in New York City. Then it's going to be Paul Newman. They both dropped out. It ends up being Clint Eastwood, and he brings his own Eastwoodness to it. Um, and that in itself is, you know, he was the biggest movie star of the time. We all, uh, well, I say we, you know, audiences really responded well to the man with no name, you know, so he's he's somebody who's acknowledged as kind of a hero with this laconic edge. And, you know, when, when you watch the man with no name films, he's undeniably on the on the side of, of right. Um, he might be brutal, he might be awful, but he's not ugly and he's not bad. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and East, you know, we can't help but bring that with us to Dirty Harry. So had Harry been played by somebody who's thoroughly unlikable, it would have been a completely different film. Um, and, you know, that in itself is part of why it's, well, you know, I, I hesitate to say it, but, but almost like it's insidious um, that we can't help but but like it because it's Clint Eastwood. You know, he's, mm. he's you know, one of our heroes and it, and it plays around with that extremely well, um, you know, because we... we we want him to succeed and do these things, even though we know he's being absolutely awful to people. You know, the the, the suicide, the guy who's suicidal, and he punches him in the face to, to rescue him. You know, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't have any sympathy for this poor guy. He just he, he traumatizes him by telling him it's gonna it's gonna be an absolute pain to identify his body, and then smacks him, and then takes him down, and then just wanders off. You know, it, it, it's you know, and everybody's sitting there going like, 
marvelous bit of policing. Um, he saved us a lot of bother, uh, and and that's that's part of the thing is that his way of policing does undeniably save a lot of bother, um, the bother of of due process of law. I know you did the Lord's work. You actually sat down and don't pretend, don't contradict me, but I believe no, you did read all the novelizations of Dirty Harry that Warner Brothers released. There was twelve of them before the between the Enforcer and Sudden Impact. Tell us about that experience. You said it had a studious avoidance of psychology. Yeah, they they were um, they're, they're archetypal airplane books. You know, they I uh, you would sit and read them very short. You know, hundred fifty maybe yeah, hundred fifty pages, um, uh, pocket sized books. You could read them in ninety minutes, and they're essentially that uh, they follow this this pattern. There's a something happens. Dirty Harry investigates. He kills people. There's some gruesome. Um, uh, deaths in it, and then everything's wrapped up before you before the plane has landed, or before even it's arrived. In some respects, you know, before you boarded. And I, I got to admit, I, I kind of enjoy them. There's one where he goes to the Alamo. You know, there, there's one where he goes to Boston, and they they don't quite deal with the fish out of water uh, thing quite as as well as you'd hoped. Serious literature might, but they're undeniably entertaining. You know, they're 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 not um, they're never going to win any awards. They're never going to sell that many, but they're, you know, I've got the collection up on my bookshelf and every now and again I look at them and, and, and smile inwardly. Do you happen to recall, does he go to Boston to, you know, check out his his ancestors, his Irish Callahan? Or any, do you remember what happened? In that There's one? something in, you know, it, it's, oh, it's over, it's nearly 10 years since I read them. I, I'm pretty sure he does. There's some sort of relative, I think, but I can't remember precisely. But it's, um, you know, I, I, if you see them for a dollar, they're worth buying just <laughs> just for the laugh. Even if we're really charitable, would it be hard to say it's actually a left wing cautionary tale about vigilanteism, the first Dirty Harry? Oh, that's a really good... I've never thought about it from that perspective. I thought, I thought a while about how to construct that question, cautionary tale. I don't know, because that's what Siegel has said. Yeah, that this, this is what might happen. And I think you could read it like that, but the problem with it is that that overlooks the extent to which Harry is lauded. Uh, for his decision, you know, it, it's you know he he gets away with things, and we we as the audience are, are kind of conditioned by the film to see him as as being correct, you know, because the uh, the other cops are either incompetent or they're lazy or they're overweight and they they fail to get their man. The bureaucrats are overly concerned with with their reputation and stuff like that, rather than wanting to solve things. So throughout he's he's undeniably right and i you know i i i can't see it as a cautionary tale because if it had been a cautionary tale he would have really got his comeuppance at some point somebody would have said you know you're you're off the case dirty harry um you know in, in that traditional way but he you know he gets his man at the end you know and in his essence this is where the film turns into a western you know in the out in the frontier out of the way of out of the sight of the city he gets his man and then he throws his badge away a little like a a, a frontier uh, sheriff might have done and we kind of think well it's you know the, the end in that is almost regretful you know you get that lovely bit of the the, the road synthesizer uh on um 
from in Lalo Schifrin's score, and, it, and it's it's in a minor key, and you, and you think, well, this is a real sad end to a what might have been a promising career, almost, you know. So it, it's in one sense, it might be a cautionary tale, but I, but because he is so anti-heroic in some respects, you, you, you can't help but think that the film actually wants him to succeed. Maybe he should have died at the end. Yeah, had had he both di- had both of them died in a uh, you know in a blaze of glory, that might have been a uh, a somewhat uh, different thing. And then a bureaucrat came and uh, uh, sorted everything out for us. But but yeah, it, it's you know, and I think the other thing is is that it was designed as an entertainment. It's designed as a a film that's a little like a western. It has all the genre takes in it, and the the. The guy that we follow through the film is undeniably the hero. You know, had there been yeah. somebody else, had the had uh, Chico Gonzalez um, not been uh, dispatched so effectively halfway through, it might have been a different film with him. You know, actually saying, "Hang on a minute, this is this is terrible. This is ridiculous. You know, why are you doing these things? You know." But he gets shot, and you know, we need that catharsis because we need him to be avenged as well. So again, it, it's difficult to see it as a um, as a critique. Had there not been sequels, I think we might be a little more generous and I think there probably wouldn't be so much opprobrium. And if Clint hadn't had his problematic future, of course, um, <laughs> obviously I'm a big fan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that, that of course, the, the, the creation of sequels responds to the fact that people responded to him. And mm. they're, they're all designed to, again, to reinforce this sense that uh, he's right. You know, so we get um, in the first sequel, you get these really nasty right wing, you know, fascist cops. And he's, he's, the, he, he's the liberal response to them. And then you, you get the feminists. So, again, he, he, he tacks to the right here. And then you get some mm-hmm. countercultural people. So he, he tacks to the, you know, and each time you see it trying to locate him as somebody that we can all understand because we all, we all hate extremists. You know, maybe, you know, Dirty Harry is a centrist after all. Um, you know, so, yeah, had the film been simply... A 1971 movie. I think we would have seen it simply as a as a, a Nixonian film, and we would have left it at that. But of course, um, you know, we get these five, these four sequels, um, and you know that enabled me to say that. Well, you know, we we have to look at the first film in light of the, the subsequent films and see them all as as part of a, a, a coherent narrative and and. That in itself means that it's very difficult just to say, well, we'd have treated it kindly if it had been on its own, because it wasn't, you know. Do you think the quote, every frame votes Nixon, <laughs> is a bit over the top, as poetic it's, as it is? It's a bit, you know, that there, that it's difficult to see. Uh, that's one of the things that's really good about uh, Siegel's films, is they, they resist that, that's, that real simplistic view. You know, it, it's every frame might vote Nixon but maybe every scene does I don't think every frame does you know and there are it's it's very aware I think of the of the problems of approving wholeheartedly of Nixonianism it it sees you know it comes about in 1971 so we've already had a few years of Nixon's law and order policies the inner city problems haven't been solved by law and order so that perhaps exonerates Siegel and enables us to see it as a bit more of a uh, a warning sign of of, of worse things to come. Um, yeah, I hadn't, you know, that's a, that's a really, really good question. Maybe I'll have to write the book again in light of that question. 
<laughs> Before we move on to speaking about the movie's beats in broad brush, the scenes and so forth, we haven't mentioned the be- the most enjoyable part of this movie to me has always actually been Scorpio. I'm just a big fan of his cartoonish role, big fan of Andy Robertson, his subsequent career. Yeah. Tell us about what he sort of shows. I think that so you or someone else said he's uh, like the nightmare exaggeration of a left-wing villain in the in the late 1960s. Yeah. I I think it's actually he's actually a lot more interesting than that because, you know, he 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 appropriates the peace symbol after he's been beaten up. Um and it, and it's clear to me that he's he, he's using that as a as a front. Uh, I don't think you know he, he appears at first to be kind of counterculture. He's got long hair, he shrieks like you imagine, he listens to loud music. But I think what is interesting about him is that he's also clearly been displaced. You know, he's living in a, uh, a cupboard, essentially, in the Kiza Stadium. And one of the things I was thinking about in the book was, could he be one of the people that's displaced by the, the modernization of San Francisco's inner city, which involved clearing large amounts of um, uh, poor quality housing and moving um, itinerant uh, people and people with no fixed abode out to other parts of the city. So it could be that he's a victim of that. So I see him as, as kind of a... Uh, it's a problematic link to make between the counterculture and um, his sort of uh, sexualized view of um, well, his, his, his violence and his, his, his deviant sexuality. Yeah. Whereas I think we can see him as somebody who's also a victim. So I see him as quite a, almost like a, a, a sympathetic character. is a bit too much to, to put it. But there are certainly sympathetic elements within him that he's, he's not as cartoonish as maybe um, people would have liked. Except for that makeup scene when he gets the tar beaten out, up, you know, with the yeah, yeah, three pennies worth. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and there was all those rumours it was Curtis Mayfield, and of course it wasn't Curtis Mayfield. But you know, <laughs> it, it's there, there's a uh, uh, you know, it, it's a very very strange scene that because it, it it suggests that he likes being beaten up, and he's he's actually getting some sort of crazy enjoyment out of it, and you know, it, mm. it's it's you know, for me, it serves a purpose for him to blame it on Harry Callahan to, to once again show that um, uh, this sort of vigilante cop has gone beyond the means. But, of course, this guy's already murdered and killed and he, he targets uh, minorities, he targets um, sexual minorities, he targets young women, so we can't believe that, that he would get away with it. You know, he's, he's undeniably horrible. So, you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite a complex character when you, you start to pick apart all of those, those pieces. That's another criticism from modern consensus looking back. Someone said he had a a profile that would make no sense even to an FBI profiler, you know, about kidnapping and killing and beating up a liquor store proprietor. Um, You say it's problematic, obviously. It brings together intimations of his homosexuality, even just the ad lib that wasn't intended by Siegel, but adds to that linking between criminality and homosexuality, which is quite difficult for us to take as a modern audience. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and it, it's reinforced by the scene where uh, uh, Dirty Harry is, you know, he, he's having that run around uh, in the night of San Francisco and he comes across this guy who propositions him, who he calls Alice, and tells him to get back into the closet, basically, you know, and, and these these yeah. people are presented as clearly deviants. And, of course, Harry is an upstanding heterosexual male, um, overcomes them. So, yeah, there, there is this this problematic view of 
San Francisco's or the, the, the sexual minorities. Um, and again, and you see that recurring in the film that, that he calls um, one of the countercultural um, activists in The Enforcer a, 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 an effing fruit. A hood. Uh, yeah. Oh, an effing fruit, yeah. Fruit, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then shoots him with this bazooka. Um, it's really nasty, that movie, uh, The Enforcer. It's incredibly nasty. As a teenager, I thought, oh, that's funny. But, um, I mean, I love Ty and Daly, but it's pretty ugly, actually. Yeah, you know, she's, she's great in it. And, and her character, she has these, these lovely little uh, scenes with him where she talks about, you know, you, you like the, the magnum for the penetration, you know. And, and <laughs> she's, yeah. she plays around with, with his, it, it plays around and tries to undercut his, his kind of, Preapic masculinism, you know, it takes him. He, they, they, they're at Coit Tower, and she, she makes a, a bawdy joke about him, and you know, and yeah. she's really good in it. But, but yes, the film is is decidedly reactionary because it's you know it suggests again that the counterculture are all problematic. They have these this this commune that are clearly based on the Symbionese uh, Liberation Army, who are itself a kind of a parody of the um, uh, of the Weathermen. And the, the revolutionary factions of the late 1960s, and it piles on their 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 ridiculous nature, and and of course they all get their comeuppance. Um, and they're in it for the money, the yeah, people they yeah. get for the people, and for like, the people, and, and he's like, yeah, 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 right on, and you know, <laughs> let, let's get the cash in. So yeah, it's uh, uh, it, it really is a, a an interesting no, view. Ugly though, there's that scene I think where he threatens to out big Med, big Ed Mustafa. He goes, "Oh, tell him you're a queer." Yeah, 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 and 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 Big Ed is is convinced of the righteousness of uh, an equal opportunities race, racist, you know, and it, you know, he, you know, at the end he says, "Go get him, son," you know, and um, and again, the, the, it really does fit with that that kind of ideological notion that you know common sense can unite us all, and that uh, you know he can't be a racist because he's getting on with Big Ed, and he convinces Big Ed that um, you know, but black nationalism is a dead end. You know, because all, all, all it does is, again, it takes a white man to get uh, a, a black man to understand these things, you know. So that oh, yeah. it, it gets, it really is the um, quite a distasteful film in many respects, but undeniably entertaining as well. You know, I, I, I did enjoy watching it despite myself. Likewise. That's why I devoted a whole podcast to uh, reviewing it minute by minute to see if maybe I should reform and I shouldn't like it as much as i do and listening to podcasty for me those guys are so intelligent and everything yeah listening to break yeah i was like ah, oh. yeah they they, they really break things down yeah. extremely well and you know they that like you they came up with questions i was like god i wish i'd written about that beforehand you know so maybe if i write another book on these things i should phone you all up and ask you the questions and get you to give me the ideas uh only if you want to know like exact dialogue i know it off by heart i know that 